The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. Daniel 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now let's turn to our gospel reading. If you would please join me in standing. Our gospel lesson comes from the book of John, chapter 12. We're going to start reading in verse 27. Friends, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. <clears throat> well, once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Uh, for those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, we are in the season called Ordinary Time. It's part of the church liturgical calendar. And this means that we are joining with the global church uh, and the historic church around the world and throughout history in asking a question. What does it mean for us to be faithful to Jesus in our mundane and everyday lives in our place and in our time? And true to form, as we do every week, we are bringing this question with us to the Holy Scriptures and in particular, this fall semester, we are bringing this to the Old Testament book of Daniel, where we are in the midst of a sermon series that we're calling Faithful Presence in the City. And today we're going to look at chapter 5. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Some of you who know uh, me and know our family will have heard this story before, and so I apologize for repeating stories, but that's what you do when you get older. You just repeat stories. Um, so <clears throat> a long time ago, like six months ago, uh, my wife, Rachel, received a parking ticket. This never happens to her. I'm the bad driver in the family. I'm the one who gets parking tickets. I'm the one who gets speeding tickets. Rachel, clean driving record. So she got a parking ticket, and this was particularly appalling to her because... It was an unjust parking ticket. She had paid at the parking meter. She still had time left on the meter, and yet she was given a ticket anyway. Totally unfair. So, not one to let injustice just slip by. She goes down to the courthouse at the appropriate date and protests this ticket. Unfortunately, uh, for whatever reason, the way our wonderful justice system works, um, the case was thrown out and uh, she was forced to pay the parking ticket anyway, even though she had like photographic evidence proving that there was time, still time left on the meter and she still had the ticket. No one listened, she still had to pay. And what made things so much worse that particular day was as she exited the courthouse and went out to her car, do you know what she discovered on her windshield? Another parking ticket, even though she had paid at the meter. And at this point I said to her, honey, just pay it online and let's move on with our lives. But that feeling of things being just unfair, like no matter what you do, you just can't break out of this cycle of unfairness or, or injustice. It's something that is actually a common thread that runs in and out between every single person in the room right now. And whether it was a basketball coach who just didn't take a liking to you and so you rode the bench even though you deserved uh, to be a starter on the team or whether you had a boss who had something against you and just rode your case and favored other employees or whether you were a student in school and it seemed like somebody else was, this, was the teacher's pet or not you, whatever, whatever it was, all of us have had this experience of like screaming at the ceiling, it's not fair and there's nothing you can do about it, right? And the Bible actually knows something about that feeling. The Bible has a lot to say about justice because that feeling of unfairness, that is, a, that is a feeling of injustice, right? And the Bible tells a great story about justice. In fact, the story of the Bible begins with the world as a just place where everything is operating and going the way it's supposed to go. And this explains why every single human being ever since the dawn of time has had this deep feeling inside themselves that there is a way things are supposed to be. Did you know that? Isn't that strange? Like 
Do koala bears wake up with that feeling every morning? I don't think so. And yet human beings wake up every morning with a sense somewhere inside of them that there is a way that things are supposed to be, both with themselves and with the world. But the story of the Bible continues, and if you know the story, you know that what happens next is what Christians call the fall into sin. Injustice enters the world. And this explains why every single human being since that time has had a sense that things are not the way they are supposed to be. There is a right way that things are supposed to be, and yet it is not the way things are. There is something wrong and broken and fractured with the world. And the story of the Old Testament, as you work your way through the Bible, plays this out. You see it in Egypt, as they enslave and oppress the Israelites, you see it in the book of Judges, where, quote, everyone does what was right in their own eyes, and, surprise, surprise, things don't go great when everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Society actually falls apart. So Israel says, this is no good, we need a king. So they get a king, it's King Saul. Does it go well? It does not go well. King Saul then oppresses his own people. They say, this is no good, we need a better king. They get King David. This is great, initially. And then King David, actually drunk with power, becomes an oppressor himself. Even our better king is still no good. And the story of the Old Testament is replete with this cry that is echoed over and over again. And we sang it earlier in this service, how long? How long is this injustice gonna go on? It seems like we're caught in this never-ending cycle of wickedness and evil and corruption and oppression. And by the time you get to the life and times of Jesus, that how long question is answered, and it's answered in a person. Jesus is the one who shows up on the scene and says things like this, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus comes announcing the dawn of justice. Justice is finally here and it's here in himself. And the story of the Bible anticipates, looks forward to a day when justice is not only announced, but actually consummated, actually established throughout all the earth, where justice is the norm and not the exception. In the words of the prophet Amos from the Old Testament, a time when justice rolls down like waters and righteousness an ever-flowing stream. Which means for you and I who live in this in-between period where justice has been announced and inaugurated in Jesus but not yet fulfilled, we live in this time where justice is promised, but it hasn't fully arrived, which means we have to do what? We have to wait for it. Justice is primarily something that we wait for. And I wanna clarify something real quick because we might misunderstand. Waiting for justice does not mean that justice will never arrive. And it doesn't mean that waiting for justice is somehow noble in and of itself. Waiting is only dignified when the thing actually comes, right? Then the waiting was worth it. If the thing never arrives, then what's the point of waiting? As Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail, he said, for years now, I have heard the word wait, but this wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see that justice too long delayed is justice denied. And God agrees, or at least the God of the Bible agrees. And when the, while the delay of God may seem long to us, it does not last forever. And when the justice of God finally does arrive, it is swift and effective. And that is what we see in Daniel chapter five. The justice of God arriving, swift and effective. Now, let's kind of set the scene here. If you turn over the cover of the liturgy you received when you walked in, you'll find a piece of artwork there um, done a number of years ago by John Martin. It's beautiful. It's actually quite large in person. And here's what's happening in this scene. 
you wouldn't know all of this from just reading the book of Daniel. You'd have to do a little bit of outside historical research. But here's what's happening at this time in history. King Cyrus the Great of Persia and Darius the Mede of the Medans have led armies to the gates of Babylon because one week earlier, the Medo-Persian Empire defeated Babylon in war. So Babylon is fresh on the heels of a crushing military defeat. The enemies have gathered outside of their gates. They're gonna come through and knock down the wall any minute. And so on the eve of utter disaster, Belshazzar, the current king of Babylon, throws a raging party. (laughs) It's a party at the end of the world. It's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And suddenly, in the midst of the revelry, a hand appears and writes words on the wall. It freaks everybody out, rightly so. Isn't it good to know that the characters of the Bible are just as normal as you, right? If you were throwing a party and a hand appeared and wrote on the wall, you would panic, and so did they. In their ancient Middle Eastern mind, they weren't thinking, oh, this is normal because we're superstitious old people. No, 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 no. It weirded them out. It would weird you out too. And so the party stops. It grinds to a halt. Interpreters are called for. This is a theme throughout the book of Daniel. And they show up and true to form, they are useless. They can't do it. This happens over and over again. It's getting funny at this point. And then Daniel is summoned. And he shows up, he's an older man at this point. He's been in Babylon for most of his life. He interprets the writing on the wall and says that the writing means that Babylon has been numbered and weighed and measured and found wanting. And now their empire is gonna be given over to the Persians. In other words, the words on the wall spell judgment and doom from God on Babylon. And what we're gonna do, so that's the scene. What we're gonna do as we get into some more of the details here, is we're gonna see that the writing on the wall is either a relief or a horror, depending on who you are. The writing on the wall is a relief or a horror, depending on who you are. Now, why is it a relief? Think about this from the standpoint of the person of Daniel in this story. Who is he? He's an older man at this point, and he has been waiting, listen, he has been waiting for God to judge Babylon his whole life. Here it is. It's finally here. As a young man, he knew that Jerusalem and the the nation of Judah was weak and that Babylon was strong. And then in his kind of teenage and maybe young 20 years, Babylon actually conquered his city and he is deported as an exile into Babylon. And now he spent at this point probably 40 to 50 years living as an exile in Babylon, enslaved to his oppressors. Not a great life. No doubt, Daniel has probably prayed some version of this his whole life. God, would you please save and protect your people and would you judge our enemies, the Babylonians? And here we have seemingly an answer to that prayer. God has showed up. Literally, God shows up and it's spelling doom for the Babylonians. And it seems appropriate if you're reading this story, to ask yourself a question like, well, if Daniel had to wait that long for justice, because that's what it is, it's justice, where am I waiting for justice? And is there any place in my life where I've been waiting anywhere near that long? I mean, just think about it. Is there anything in your life where you've been waiting for justice for a year, like a whole year? And by waiting, I don't mean you have something you want that you don't have. That's not a justice thing. That's a you want things thing. that's funny, guys. So, no, but think about it. Where, where is there some place of 
profound unfairness where you've been waiting for God to intervene. If you're having trouble thinking of something, then maybe let's ask it a different way. Um, where is God absent in your life where you wish he was present? Where is God not acting or appear, appearing to not act in your life where you wish God was more engaged? No doubt that was the emotional and spiritual experience of Daniel and his friends throughout most of their time in Babylon, praying to God and not hearing anything and still being in captivity. Daniel's an old man. He's been waiting for a long time. You know, <clears throat> I, would, I, I just am curious what this experience was like for somebody like Daniel and maybe for some of the other Judean um, exiles who were living in Babylon at this time because the reason why I wonder this is because there are very few things in life that light up our imaginations the way the idea of a villain getting what they deserve does. There is something unbelievably right. It's like a feel-good thing, but it's also a right thing when a villain finally gets what they deserve. I mean, whether you're watching The Lion King and Scar finally gets taken down by the hyenas, right? We all cheered at that moment. Or whether it's the ride of the Rohirrim in The Lord of the Rings, or whether it's uh, Liam Neeson like punching his way through half of Eastern Europe to rescue his daughter and Taken. Like, these are the moments in movies where I cry. And that's kind of embarrassing, but actually I'm not that embarrassed about it. It's, the thing that gets me in those stories is not when the guy gets the girl or when like, you know, the puppy is rescued or something. It's like, it's when the villain gets what he deserves. That's the great moment. And that's what this moment is. There's a release of tension. Justice rolls like waters and wrongs are made right. And for anybody reading this story thousands of years ago or today, the very clear message is God sees you. He has not forgotten you. He is not ignoring you. And he is on his way. And there will come a time when God does show up and put things right. You will not have to wait forever. And whether you're waiting for something as broad as, let's say, racial justice in the city of Richmond, or whether you're waiting for something as personal as the unfairness of your current work environment. For those who have suffered injustice, the finger on the wall is a relief. Your waiting is at an end. God has not forgotten you. The writing on the wall is like the sound of trumpets. The cavalry is here. Your rescue is at hand. This is, I found this totally fascinating. There are a number of uh, authors during this time in history who refer to Cyrus the Great, the like emperor of the Persian Empire, with messianic language. And to my knowledge, it's the only instance where an Israelite refers to a non-Israelite in this kind of like messianic savior sense. That's the kind of relief and release of tension that any Judean or Israelite would have felt when Cyrus shows up at the gates of Babylon to take him down. Finally, we're getting rescued. Now, as we think about justice and what it means to wait for justice, there's probably some of us who in our minds right now are thinking, now, wait a minute, you're talking about waiting for justice and God showing up and bringing justice, but aren't we supposed to also work for justice, right? Now, think about it this way. When it comes to seeking justice in our time, there's sort of two sides of the horse to fall off on. 
One side is the kind of person who longs to see justice and things made right and acted in their lifetime, but they think, you know what? It might not happen in my time. My job is just to wait. God's got this. I'm just going to wait. The other person on the other side says, no, I need to be engaged. I need to apply myself. I need to roll up my sleeves and work for justice right now. And they're the kind of person who, when they're picketing, they're going to say things like, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now, right? I will not wait. Two sides of the horse to fall off on. Why are we falling off the horse? Why can't those just be two different options? Because there is a different angle on this text. Both of those options we just named assume something. They assume that you are just and that injustice is a problem that other people are embodying and enacting on the world, not you. What would it be like to be in the story but to be Belshazzar or just your average Babylonian going about your business? Death and defeat are right around the corner. You're about to be judged. How are you going to deal with it? You know, if when we were talking about the story earlier and describing the party that Belshazzar throws, if that felt illogical to you, if you thought to yourself, what a strange thing to do. You know, the enemies are at the gates. You're about to get conquered. Your army's defeated. All hope is lost. Why are you throwing a party? Why not sort of do some last-ditch negotiations or maybe some, you know, heroic last final charge fighting? Then may I gently suggest you don't know yourself very well. Because faced with a very stressful situation where things are out of your control, what do most of us tend to do? Do we roll up our sleeves and apply ourselves? No. We distract ourselves. Distraction is, our, is the human go-to when faced with a situation that is frightening and outside of your control. And there is nothing more frightening than the imminence of death. And we are, both as individuals and as a culture and society, very distracted from the imminence of death and judgment. In fact, just saying that sentence sounds wrong. It sounds like something we want to squirm out of right now. And might, right now you might be thinking, I wonder what I'm going to watch on Netflix this afternoon. Stop. You're distracting yourself. Come back. <laughs> Ernest Becker writes this. Human beings cannot live in full awareness of death. If our death is personal extinction and if the sun's death, like the sun in the sky, is civilization's extinction, then nobody can live with this. Why? because there, then there's no reasonable difference for choosing one thing over another because nothing matters. In other words, death is the ultimate trial, judgment the ultimate threat, and therefore the natural human reaction when faced with that is to go for distraction. And in this story, we see three different kinds of distraction. And in those distractions, we see something of a mirror of ourselves. Distraction number one is distraction through pleasure. Where do we see that? Well, there's a dead giveaway in the story, but you'd have to know a little bit of history. Belshazzar invites his concubines to the party. Now, I know we're probably not all equally up on our Babylonian party-throwing etiquette, but just so you know, if you ever happen to throw a party in Babylon, don't do that. This is not proper party, party conduct. When you're throwing a party in Babylon, you might invite your wives, plural. You might invite your lords and ladies and the higher court officials. You don't invite your concubines, to the party because that is a part of your life that is, quote, like part of the deal but sort of distasteful. It's not your public image that you want to present. And yet, Belshazzar brings his concubines to the party. What does that tell us? This is less of a wine and cheese event. It's a bit more of an orgy. 
This is a raging, all out, pull out all the stops party. Belshazzar is seeking to distract both himself, both himself and all of his court officials with overindulgence on pleasure. As Viktor Frankl, Viktor Frankl puts it, when a person can't find deep, a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. These folks are staring down the barrel of the end of the empire. So what do they do? They throw a party. And we're not so different. What is your go-to feel good at the end of a very hard day? What's your go-to feel good when you're faced with something that is hard and painful and difficult and completely outside of your control? You know, we have more distraction at our fingertips than nearly any other time in history. I think that's true. And it probably is not too much of an exaggeration to say that as a society in Western culture, we are distracting ourselves to death. I mean, if you lost power tonight and you couldn't use your phone or your TV or your laptop or any devices at all, and you just had to sit there in the dark for a few hours, doesn't that just sound miserable? For many of us, we could think, there's nothing worse than that. That's the worst, right? Because what kind of things do you contemplate in those sort of moments? You contemplate things like the meaning of life, the frailty of life, perhaps even the reality of death. Nobody wants that. I sure hope the power comes back on. Way number two, distraction through success. The party is for a thousand. Look at the picture on your cover art. It's not a photograph, but it's a nice depiction. There's a lot of people at this party, and they are the important people. Babylon was known as Babylon the Great, not Babylon the Okay or Babylon the Pretty Good. It was Babylon the Great. All the important people are there. And Belshazzar is surrounding himself with people who are pursuing achievement and success and reminding him of his own achievements and his own success. And we might just stop and ask ourselves for a moment, why are you and I working so very hard to be successful? What is driving you? What is motivating you? There are a number of ways we might answer that question, but one way that is true for almost everybody is that in your successes and your achievements, you are reaching for a kind of immortality, a kind of being known and recognized that will last longer than your actual physical life. You're chasing after eternity. So much of what we really want when we say we want to be successful is we're saying we want to be immortal. Distraction number one, pleasure. Distraction number two, success. Distraction number three, spirituality. This one is a curveball. It comes as a bit of a surprise. But it actually explains one of the weirdest things about this story. Belshazzar, right in the middle of this party, sends some of his servants to get some of the sacred vessels taken from Jerusalem in the temple there and brought to Babylon to take them out and to use them to serve like wine and finger food at the party. And if you thought to yourself, as Lane was reading this earlier, that's weird, you're not wrong. It is weird. What is he up to? What is he doing? Well, in bringing these sacred vessels out and using them in his party, he is demonstrating the subjugation of Israelite God to Babylonian God. He's saying, look, us, you, our culture, your culture, our society, your society, our religion, your religion, our spirituality, your spirituality. We're better. Your spirituality serves our gods. That idea of using a religion 
to serve the thing that you actually value the most is actually not such a strange idea after all. You see, there are all kinds of ways that as an American living in the 21st century, you can actually use the Christian faith to prop up and support the things that you actually love the most. And we do this all the time. Christianity supports my family idols, my family desires. I want to have the perfect American nuclear family. I want us to look good and to be successful in all the right ways. And church is kind of part of what helps us get there. It gives us a community. It gives us friends. It gives us people who support us. It kind of helps educate our kids into the kind of moral people I want them to be. The church kind of serves my family goals. If a church doesn't serve my family goals, I'm going to switch churches, right? Until I find the church that does support my family goals. Or what about a church that supports my political idolatry, whether right or left or something else, right? I have these beliefs about the way the world should be. I have the way I want that implemented here in the United States of America. And I want a community around me that affirms me and supports me in those beliefs and maybe even puts some dollars and some staff hours on the line to achieve some of those beliefs. And if I can't find a church that supports that, I'm gonna switch churches, right? Because the purpose of my faith is actually to support my political ideology. Or what about my career goals? I have these certain measures that I want to achieve by a certain time and place in my life. And part of what I get out of a church is like a community and a group of peers who are gonna help me, maybe even a network of relationships that can help me move my career down the road. And as I get closer and closer to success, my church will either be a help or a hindrance to the kind of career success that I long for so much in life. And if I ever hear a sermon that seems to counter that, I'm gonna switch churches because the real thing I love the most is my career and my church just supports that. You see, distraction reveals a deep inner injustice. When you catch yourself chasing distraction, the self-diagnosing question that you can ask yourself if you're brave enough is what, what deep inner problem what deep inner wickedness or injustice am I trying so desperately to cover up with all of this distraction? You see, for those who are unjust, the finger on the wall is a horror. It spells impending doom. It cracks right through all of the distractions. It grinds the whole thing to a halt and it forces us to reckon with what's actually happening. This is why the prophet Amos in the Old Testament says this to God's people who are praying for God to enter into history and get involved. Amos says to them, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It is darkness, not light. In other words, the prophet's saying to God's own people, you keep asking for God to intervene. If he does, it's not gonna go well for you because you're on the wrong side of this. You see, we long and we wait and we pray and we work for justice, but when it finally arrives, we find ourselves on the wrong end. We're deserving of judgment. We're on the wrong side of justice. We pray for God to intervene in our lives, all the while thinking that God's on our side, but what if he's not? What if God does intervene, but you find out that God's not on your side? We realize that the writing on the wall spells doom and the hammer's gonna fall on us. We're guilty and we deserve to be judged by God. And as I'm saying this, I recognize there are probably a few people in the room who are thinking, I knew this was coming because this is what pastors and churches do. They're always trying to make you feel guilty and always trying to make you feel ashamed so that you'll be vulnerable and then do whatever the church tells you to do. 
This is spiritual manipulation, Dan. You're just trying to make me feel bad about myself so that you can control me, and I won't fall for it. Fair. It's a fair response. And it's certainly true that there are some charlatans out there who pull stunts like that. But in this case, if we were to think something like that or be skeptical of something like that, we would be wrong, and here's why. Because we have not yet talked about what Jesus has to do with justice. You see, God understands the cycle of injustice and the way that empires rise and fall. I mean, let's just pan the camera out for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon conquer Jerusalem. Darius the Mede conquers Babylon. Later, Greece is gonna conquer the Medo-Persian Empire, and then Rome is gonna conquer Greece, perpetuating injustice after injustice. The cycle just keeps on going, the world never becoming a more just place because, to quote Jane Williams, we think that the only way to overcome an enemy is by using similar weapons to those that the enemy uses. Force against force, anger against anger, fierce defense against fierce attack. And so the cycle of violence continues. Those who were oppressed now oppress others. Those who were vulnerable now use force to ensure that they will never be vulnerable again, even if that force makes others vulnerable, as vulnerable as they once were. And on it goes, until something until God becomes a human and enters the system and breaks the cycle. You see, just as Belshazzar desecrated these sacred vessels for his own pleasure and profit, so the world, listen, desecrates Jesus, the most sacred of all vessels. Jesus was weighed and measured and incorrectly found wanting by Rome and by the Jewish religious leaders. In Jesus, the God who is righteous identifies with our unrighteousness. In Jesus, the God who is just identifies with our injustice, which is absolutely amazing. And listen, just as the sacred vessels in Babylon were lifted up in religious sacrilege and then poured out wine, so Jesus... God in the vessel of a human body is lifted up on the cross and his blood pours out like wine. And just as Belshazzar thought that he had the last word, so did Rome and the Jews think that they had the last word on Jesus. And then listen, just as in the middle of the party, Babylon fell and was conquered, so at the moment of Jesus' resurrection, the kingdom of darkness and injustice and oppression fell and was defeated. And all those who had condemned Jesus were judged and they themselves then found wanting. You see, Jane Williams again puts it so well. God confronts us with the reality of sin and he upholds the cause of those who have been crushed by the sinfulness of the world. But then God offers to take the penalty upon himself in Christ. There has to be a penalty, otherwise there is no justice for the oppressed. But if we all had to bear the full penalty for what we have inflicted on others, then our case would be hopeless. The point is, Jesus is like a flood wall protecting a city, and he receives the full force of the flood waters of God's justice. The wave of justice breaks upon Jesus, and those who huddle and crouch behind him seeking the shelter of his protection are the ones who are spared. Jesus stands between us and the judgment that we deserve. This is why for a Christian, and only for a Christian, the prayer for justice begins with the words, thank you. Thank you for sparing me from the judgment I so rightly deserve. 
And so with a heart full of humble gratitude for Jesus, you and I can have the patience to wait for God's justice on others, all the while hoping along the way that they will actually turn to Jesus and be spared. You see, all people are waiting for justice. I hope you know that. All the people sitting next to you right now, all of your neighbors in the city of Richmond, everybody is waiting for justice. But it's only Christians, only followers of Jesus who are waiting for justice by praying for their enemies to turn to Jesus and be spared and not judged as God's justice falls on Christ instead of falling on them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the wall that breaks the floodwaters of the Father's justice and for sparing us. Would you give us a heart of your justice, Lord, to pray that your justice would roll down over our city and our country and our world, but that you would have mercy and spare those and help those turn to you. In your name we pray, amen.